So, good evening, everybody. Um, I would like to um, begin by encouraging you <coughs> to think about this as a practice talk. <coughs> and by that, I mean uh, your practice is as important as my talk. So I would like to encourage you to work with your staying very present, very connected to your body and the breath while I'm talking. Because everything that I'm going to say uh, really has to do with your experience of your body and the breathing. And so it's also in the sense of, or in the service of, maybe down just a hair, um, in the service of the continuity we spoke about at the eating meditation, that we want to develop or allow this sense of continuity to grow. And in that way, we also want to learn the art of being present, which is part of the art of samadhi. And so you could see what, what grounds you, what keeps you centered in your presence here, in the, in the moment, in the immediacy of your experience as I'm speaking. And uh, sometimes people, it's a little easier at first to just stay with the body. It's a little more um, a bigger object, a grosser object than the breath. Or for some people, it's really comfortable to just stay with the breathing. And you could stay with the breathing. If, if the breathing is so absorbing that my words become faint or not so important, that's fine too. You'll, you'll get the gist of it. You'll get the essence of it. And it's part of the, this art of uh, samadhi is learning how to navigate the different um, terrain we find ourselves in on retreat as part of practice, not as a break or something separate from practice or something other. And it's part of the adventure of any practice is to see, to find our way in, to really be curious, to really be interested. So how do we how do we get here? How do we get here now? And what's it like if I stay and feel this breath now? Even as I'm listening, you're still breathing. Even whether the talk is a good talk or a bad talk or interesting or boring, you're going to be breathing through this whole talk. It's a great time to practice. <clears throat> and so what I'd like to do, in addition to encourage this sense of practice, talk is practice, is to give a little bit of overview of kind of, well, what are we doing here? What's the context for this? Uh, why are we doing it? What might be most skillful about doing it? And what are the fruits of this kind of practice? What's the goal? What's the 
maturation of this look like? <clears throat> and uh, as Richard was saying this morning, uh, he said he said he's not so comfortable with the word concentration. He likes the word samadhi. I, I feel similar to him, although they're both good words. They're both good words. The the what I find. Um, a little tricky about the word concentration is it often comes with a lot of baggage for people. That uh, at least my memory is of being told and people being told if you don't concentrate, something bad will happen. You won't pass a test and you'll never get into college and then you'll never get a job and then you'll never make any money and you'll never get married and you'll never have a good life. and. <clears throat> And so there was a lot of uh, kind of tension or negativity around the whole idea of concentration. Or there was some idea if you didn't concentrate more, there was something wrong with you. Maybe you weren't good at hitting a baseball or kicking a soccer ball and the coach would yell, you need to concentrate more, what's, what's wrong with you? So a certain kind of negativity, certain kind of baggage and even the word, um, uh, you know, is associated at least for people who are old enough for the generation that came after World War II with concentration camps. Definitely a very negative uh, uh, connotation. The word itself, if you, if you look it up, uh, is, is a good word. And it's an appropriate word for what we're doing. And it's quite related to the word samadhi. Um, Khan center is the etymology of it. It means with center, to be in the center, to be centered. And, um, and uh, in any word with that kind of etymology also has this meaning. The point around which a circle is drawn the point around which a circle is drawn. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about samadhi practice. That we're pointing at something and we're beginning to center, but the center actually has a very large circumference. That we begin to center ourselves in, in an awareness that is not totally, it may be exclusive at times, but it also can be very broad. It can include everything. Or sometimes the other way I think about it is the point around which the center is drawn is the point can fill everything. The point can get very big at times, or sometimes the point is small and everything else is also there. Like we may be feeling the breath, but we're also aware of our thoughts and our feelings and our sensations and our reactions and all the kind of things that are happening for us, our distractions. Or sometimes that point of the breath just fills the whole of awareness. The center becomes quite big. And the synonyms for concentration, close attention, attentiveness, single-mindedness, absorption, are really all related to the word samadhi sense of being focused or centralized as in centered, gathering, 
And these are, again, related to how we understand the word samadhi, which is derived from a verb. It means to put together, to collect. And so the sense of, of practicing in this way, where we're focusing on the samadhi aspect of practice, is to get collected, to be composed, to gather ourselves so we're not fragmented. We're not in 10 places at once. We actually start to, and it can even feel like this, it's almost like reclaiming ourselves and becoming whole or a sense of oneness. There's a, a, a definition from the Mahayana about samadhi. It says, samadhi is a non-dualistic state of consciousness in which the consciousness of the experiencing, quote, subject, unquote, becomes one with the experience, quote, object, unquote. Thus is only experiential content. Should I read that again? Samadhi is a non-dualistic state of consciousness in which the consciousness of the subject, the mind, let's say, becomes one with the object, the breath. And in that becoming one, there's not a separation. The separation as mind and breath come together, that separation begins to dissolve or fall away or reveal its dualism, its one perspective. But there's another experience where we, you could say, become the breath. And so the breath and us, or the mind and the breath, they're not actually separate at a certain point. And that's, a, that's one definition of samadhi. It's a certain kind of absorption. The definition we've tended to use here on this retreat over the years has been the unification of mind, or sometimes the unification of body and mind. Again, that, that bringing together of all the disparate pieces of our consciousness, so they begin to, instead of being kind of all over the place, or thinking about this, or worrying about that, or having a reaction to this, that those reactions and the wanting or the not wanting and the desires and aversion begins to relax, soften, release on its own. We don't have to force anything. But in its release, we find ourselves kind of landed here, unified, whole. Now, samadhi's given a lot of emphasis in the Buddha's teachings. It's in a a number of lists. It's in the Eightfold Noble Path. There's one one limb of the path is right samadhi, sama samadhi, right concentration. It's in the teachings of the five spiritual faculties. It's in the seven factors of enlightenment. It's in the uh, 12 steps of transcendental dependent origination. uh, Transcendent, excuse me, transcendent dependent origination. It's in the teachings on mindfulness of the body uh, also. The the part that I just want to highlight for a moment 
that I think is worth us considering, contemplating, is that in the path, the Buddha outlines eight limbs, right? Right understanding, right aspiration, right um, speech, right action, right speech, right livelihood, and then right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. The first two of of understanding and aspiration are considered part of the wisdom basket. The second three of action, speech, livelihood are the sila or the virtue or really how we in-world the dharma. The third basket is the contemplative basket, right? Right effort, which a little bit I'll speak to here tonight, which we're all practicing already. We're all experimenting with what's the right effort so that I can stay with the breath even now while I'm listening to the Dharma talk. What kind of effort does it take? How relaxed do I need to be? How much, how much do I put attention on myself? What happens if I put all my attention on my breath? Will I still be able to hear it? So right effort, right mindfulness, paying attention, seeing what's happening as it's happening, which then informs how we make effort, and then right concentration, the, the unifying of our experience, the sticking with, the staying with, the steadying of our mindfulness, we could say. What I find interesting and worth noting here is those three parts of the contemplative basket. The basket itself is called the basket of samadhi. It's not called the basket of sati, of mindfulness. It's called samadhi. And so it implies something. Samadhi includes effort, includes mindfulness, includes concentration. And I, partly I say this in order to let go of any contention you might have about, oh, are we doing mindfulness? Are we doing samadhi? Because you can't do one without the other. You have to have them both. You can't do mindfulness without the concentration. You can't do, you can't, really you can't deepen mindfulness without concentration. You can't deepen samadhi without mindfulness. Because as we begin, as we're we attempting to make the effort that allows us to stay here, to feel our body breathing, whether it's at the nose or the, the chest or the belly or the whole body, we're using our mindfulness to discern, to help us discern what works and what doesn't work. And so there's the discernment factor quality, which is a very important quality of mind that we want to cultivate, that's cultivated while we're practicing samadhi. And I'll, you'll hear, I'll weave this a little bit in as, as I continue in the talk. Um, one of the principles that I think is very, very helpful as we take on a practice like this, is to align with the Buddha's teaching. To align with it. By align with that, what I mean is that he had certain values 
his values were not, when he was assessing meditation practice, his value was not harsh judgment and criticism. That's not how he taught people to be good meditators. He didn't say, you idiot, you don't know how to do it. Somebody comes to him and says, oh, I'm having a hard time concentrating. He didn't say, oh, you're never going to get it. Why did you even sign up to come here? It wasn't the way the Buddha taught. So you might notice if you're aligning with some other value. Because the Buddha, the, what he taught and what was so I find so helpful is he taught, see what's skillful and what's unskillful. Use what's skillful. Let go of what's unskillful. Cultivate what's skillful. Release what's not skillful. And it, it takes it out of the realm of, of personal judgment. Like, oh, I'm a bad person because I didn't get concentrated in the last sitting. Or I have to, no, much more. He was like, well, what did you learn? Right? We're not going to get concentrated in every sitting. Well, what did you learn? What happened? What do you understand? What do you see? And I'm not saying you have to think a lot about it, but it's okay to think a little bit, to discern, okay, what's skillful and what's unskillful? What's helpful? What's unhelpful? What worked? What doesn't work? Because then we can start to repeat what works and see if we can build on that. And we can let go of what doesn't work because we say, well, that didn't, that didn't help. And then, and then we're aligning with the value of the Buddha. And you can hear already the lack of judgment, the lack of tension in that kind of view. So really this is the right view limb of the path. <clears throat> Part of the wisdom of practice is to not take it so personally, even though it's very personal. It's our practice. And to want to do it well is a beautiful aspiration. To be judging ourselves harshly sitting by sitting, not very helpful. I, I haven't seen it be helpful. Maybe you're the rare exception but I doubt it. It's also, you can hear, it's much more compassionate not to be judging ourselves. So and one thing you can do, one thing that will be helpful is to pay attention to when we're judging ourselves and stop it as best you can, whatever way you can. Now, when I first started doing really formal samadhi practice, I, I did some practice with uh, uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. And I was actually practicing here, but I was calling him up. He was down in his forest monastery. I said, can I call you? And I'm doing a self-retreat. I was doing a self-retreat here at Spirit Rock. And, and I'd like to do a little of the breath practice you do, mindfulness of breathing. And he said, sure, you, here's when you can call and you can check in and I'm happy to help. I'm like, great. You know, so I sit for a couple days, settle in, and I start to call him. And I said, okay, here's what's happening. I'm settled in. I'm, 
I wasn't used to the uh, doing the mindfulness of breathing during the walking or the eating, and I was struggling with it. And he'd listen. He'd say, "Oh, it's okay. That's okay. Good. Okay. Stay with the breathing." Okay. About a one-minute interview. Then I come back a couple of days later. Oh, I'm starting to get it. This is happening. That's happening. And he's like, "Oh, good, good. Sounds good. Stay with the breathing." And then a few more days, and I call him. And oh, now this is happening, and it's exciting. I'm liking this, and I'm learning this. And good, good. Stay with the breathing. A few more days, I call him up. I'm like. Are you going to tell me anything? <laughs> Are you going to give me any context? He said, well, if, if I think you need it, I will. Stay with the breathing. <laughs> and it was a few more days, about 10 days, 12 days in. And things were happening. It was, I was having a good time. And I was getting it a little more in the walking and really getting it in the eating. And I was having a lot of bliss come, a lot of pleasure come. I was really enjoying it. And I was like, oh, I don't care about anything. I'm just happy to do this. I don't care what happens, you know. When in the beginning I was thinking, oh, I want to see if I can go to Jhana. Or I'm like, who cares about Jhana? This is great, like it is. So I called him up and I started telling him this. And I started telling him, yeah, I'm having rapture and the sitting and the walking and the eating. And it's very cool. It's great. I don't, I don't need any instruction now. <laughs> And, and I heard this long pause, and I could tell he got interested now, something was, and it was this long pause, and he said, stay with the breathing. <laughs> and uh, it was a very interesting instruction for a couple weeks. It was a very interesting instruction. I learned more in that instruction than almost any teaching that I've had. So. Stay with the breath, everybody. Talk's over. No. Um, it, it taught me, it threw me back on myself. Like I had to figure out, well, how do you do this? How do you stay with the breathing? And he wasn't talking about just in the sitting or just in the walking or even just in the eating. He was talking about all the time. How do you do that? And I didn't know how. And what's beautiful is letting ourselves kind of be right where we are, like not know how to do it. That's where the, that's where the learning comes. That's where the skills develop. And the skills developed, they developed through trial and error. And it's one of the things he was, I, I'd read things that he'd written, he's really good about that. He always says, oh, don't be afraid to make mistakes. And so we're echoing that to you. Really experiment. How do you stay with the breath now? Not as an intellectual answer. What's the felt sense of the breath even as you're listening to the talk? How does, that, how does it center you? How does it feel? What's it like? It's a very different orientation than just listening to the talk. It really is the ground of what the talk is about. And so we'll give a lot of instructions. We will. We'll, we'll try to keep it simple, but we'll give a lot of instructions. 
you know, we'll, give in, we'll talk about connecting with the breath and sustaining one's connection. Two very simple exercises, practices related to samadhi. How do you do that? How do you connect each time, each breath? Connect at the beginning of the breath? How do you connect when you first sit down? Do you create little rituals, which you may do? Repetitive, meaning repetitive ways to begin. Some people take very long breaths to begin for a few breaths. Some people really set posture. That's a really good way to, to begin the sitting, is set the posture and then let the breath come to them. You can even try it now. Just feel your body, let the breath come to you. You don't need to do so much. Somebody was talking about um, the breath being tense. Well, then don't, don't breathe. Don't do it. Feel your body or feel the spaciousness that like was described in the pause this morning. Let the breath come to you. It'll come. Your body knows how to breathe. It's been doing it for, for a few years now, hopefully for a few years more. Play, play, experiment, be curious. The investigative factor is what I'm describing here, an important part of, of samadhi practice, of any practice. Uh, one of the ways I like to think about um, um, beginning a sitting, it's, a, it's kind of a boy metaphor, it's from football. In football, when the offensive team comes out, the defense is already lined up. And the, they have this phrase, this saying, they say, the quarterback says, oh, I, I take what the defense gives me. So the defense is lined up in certain ways, and so certain plays will be already kind of blocked. But you can see where the defense isn't, and you go there. And, and the way I think of that in terms of my own breath practice is, Oh, I want to see what reality is giving me in this sitting. Not what happened last sitting or yesterday or before, what I want to happen, but what's actually here. So the first thing, sit down, maybe establish my posture. And then, well, what's here? Oh, the breath is very faint. That's what's here now. How to work with that. Or maybe, maybe I realize I'm agitated. So that's the first thing. So the agitation's here. Can I breathe with it? Or maybe I notice, oh, I'm very quiet already. Like it's, it's, there's been some, a certain kind of continuity. I'm very quiet. Can I, let my, can I let my attention, can I let my sensitivity be as refined as the quiet and the breath and let them all mingle together? Because the breath is very subtle when, when I'm very quiet like that. And so it's, it's not so much of putting, oh, I'm going to be mindful of the breath. It's no, what's here? And then how do we attune? How do we become sensitive to the breathing right now, just as it is? And it's, it's you know, it's in, it, in the meditative world, it's fun. It's really interesting. Not only is it interesting, but it bears fruit. And the first fruit is we develop a little bit of mastery with our meditation skill. Meditation is both a, a skill and an art and a craft. And we want to develop the, 
that capacity. We want to we want to develop a little mastery here. And so to begin to see, well, what's what's skillful, what's unskillful, what supports. Like for example, you've already heard we've put out a lot of emphasis on relax and easeful kind of effort. Really, we're we're talking about a contradiction here, or at least in the normal way we hear the word effort. Because again, it, usually effort is striving or straining or efforting, right? Pushing. Where we're actually saying, suggesting to you, there's another way to make effort that it's very skillful. That means that really has to do with relaxing, with opening, with allowing, with being present. And so instead of even thinking about effort more, I think of dedicating myself to the breathing or devoting myself to the breathing or committing to the breathing, which for me brings the heart in much more. That there's a, a love of the Dharma and a love of the teachings and a love of the breath itself, the, the fact that we're alive and breathing. And this breath can take you all the way to enlightenment. All the way. The simple body breathing. And to enjoy that, appreciate that, let ourselves, let ourselves love it and devote ourselves to it in that way. And the sense of being generous with ourselves, gracious with ourselves, instead of some kind of sense of impoverishment or, or, or we have to get something in some kind of striving way. But really letting ourselves take the seat of what the Buddha would call nobility. That our, our inheritance, this magical uh, aliveness, is in itself noble, it's beautiful. And it's beautiful in all its forms, all its shapes, all its colors, all its cultures, all its religions. The whole of life is beautiful in all its particulars as it, it's the Dharma, we are the Dharma expressing itself, learning about itself. I, I uh, once with uh, uh, Tanisro Bhikkhu, once I was kidding, it was the end, I'd done a few of these month-long retreats with him, and I was talking with him at the end of one, I said, oh, I only have a few days, more days to get enlightened. And he was like, don't say that. And I heard he was, he was really serious, he was like, don't say that, that's, that's not true. And I could hear in, in, in the few words he said that he was really seeing a bigger picture. And it may be, you know, I don't know that I have exactly that picture, but I appreciated him offering me that picture that maybe we have, we have lifetimes maybe to get enlightened and we're going to take our time. We're gonna, and if it takes that, then that's what it takes. It doesn't matter what it takes. This is what we have. We're going to use it. And we're going to use it until we awaken. And it, and it allows for a certain kind of graciousness. We're not impoverished. One of the words that we need to re-translate or redefine or re-understand because of the baggage is understanding that as we sit here, we're all disciples of the Buddha. 
We are disciples of the Buddhist teaching, the Buddhist teaching of the Dharma. And the word disciple has the same root as the word discipline. And people often associate discipline with, you know, some authority telling us what to do. And that's a relatively new understanding of what uh, discipline means. Discipline always meant like a creative discipline or an artistic discipline or a contemplative discipline was all about learning. It's about studying. And so when we're disciples, we're here to learn. And we acknowledge that we, we, there's something we don't know and we want to learn. And so we're going to do the best we can, as Richard likes to say, that we're all doing the best we can to understand, to learn, to wake up. And again, I hope you hear the, the kind of non-contention I hope I'm weaving in here. That, that to practice in this way, to be disciplined in this way, to devote ourselves in this way, doesn't mean to be in contention with anything. So we can breathe with every experience. And then the foreground-background metaphor becomes really a good one to work with. We can breathe with when we're bored. We can breathe with when we're agitated. We can breathe with when we're excited. We can breathe when we're thinking a lot. And actually, one of the best instructions I've ever gotten is, if you're going to think, think about the breath. <laughs> it, you know, and, and really, I'm going to say it again. If you're going to think, think about the breath. Because you'll see, you'll probably think a little bit while you're here. And if you can start to guide your... Okay, if I'm thinking, let me think about the breath. What's it like now? Where is it now? How come come I'm not connected to it now? Well, there's one. I want to think about this other stuff. You know, you can just... But then come back and see what, what is it that you need in order to stay with the breathing now. And of course, breathing with your experience supports non-contention. And even, like I said, even the idea of mindfulness and samadhi being in contention, we don't even need to do that. They support one another. There's a very high level of samadhi in the Mahasi-style mindfulness that is the traditional way we teach mindfulness here through the lineage of Mahasi Sayadaw. Very high. It's just a different style of, of samadhi. It's called kinika samadhi. It's, it's one-pointed, but it's not one-pointed on an object. It's one-pointed on the changing nature of all objects. So it stays very still and sees how everything is changing. And there's a great value to that. Or you can do what we're doing. We can stay with the breath. And staying with the breath will also highlight how everything changes. Everything else will keep changing. And even the breath itself will keep changing. So like any skill, like any art, if you're going to learn how to play the piano, you're not going to do it in one day, in one practice session, in one piano lesson. It happens over time. 
And so one of the qualities, and a quality that the Buddha valued very highly, is patience. It's one of the paramis in Buddhism, one of the perfections of a Buddha, is just being patient with ourselves, with the process, letting it unfold, letting the Dharma show itself, reveal itself to us with our sincerity, with our devotion and dedication, with our discipline. And so patience, continuity, relaxation, steadfastness, investigation or experimentation, and then the discernment, what works, what doesn't work, what's skillful, what's unskillful. And the last piece about this, a couple last pieces actually, is that you want to get up close and personal with your breathing. You can do it from a distance, right? I'm up here and I'm watching the breath and it's at the nose or it's at the chest or it's at the belly or it's somewhere, but I'm somewhere else. And, and you'll get a, you can get a certain kind of samadhi and sometimes a lot of samadhi that way. But I really want to encourage starting to come closer to your breath. Be in contact with it. Taste it. What is the texture of the breath like? And I'm not looking for, I'm not looking for actual um, conceptual answers so much. I'm looking for how can we have the felt sense begin to grow and fill our attention, fill our awareness. How can we have the sensation, the isness of the breath, the life of it, the qualities of warmth or coolness or vibration or tingliness or movement or flow or length or depth or shallowness? How can we let all of that begin to fill our awareness? How can we come so close that there's no separation between us and the breathing? Can we be curious about that? Can we experiment with that? And you can start to have this sense of merging or becoming one with the breath. The Buddha has a couple beautiful images of, of samadhi of, as it deepens. Here's one. I'll just read it. I'm sure we'll read these more. But he says, um, as, as one begins to become absorbed, that one permeates and pervades. A few, this, is, this is just working with the body, but he's talking about samadhi. He says, one permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born from seclusion and withdrawal. Just as if a skilled bathman or bathwoman or bathman or bathwoman's apprentice were to pour bath powder into a brass basin, so the apprentice were, would pour bath powder into like a brass bowl or basin, and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water so that the ball of bath powder, saturated, moistened-laden, permeated within and without, would nevertheless not drip. Even so, the monk, the, the uh, bhikkhu, the practitioner, permeates his or her very body with the rapture and the pleasure born of withdrawal and seclusion, and there almost there is nothing of the entire body unpervaded 
by this consciousness born from, from seclusion. And one remains thus heedful, ardent, resolute. Any memories and resolves related to the householder life are abandoned. And with their abandoning, one's mind gathers and settles inwardly and grows unified and centered. This is how a practitioner develops mindfulness immersed in the body. It's the same principle for mindfulness with the breath, which is, of course, a body practice. Like, like you know, that, the way he's describing the uh, almost sensual nature that he's describing this, of kneading the water and the powder and it all becomes one. We want our mindfulness, we want our attention, we want our consciousness to start to knead or mix or become one with the breathing. And so we can start to experience that rich, richness, that pleasure, that unification. And then, then we can really, well then when that starts happening, then we want to make our effort. You know, often in, in practice people come at the beginning and like, I'm going to really do this and there's a lot of like, I'm going to sit until I get samadhi and jhanas and enlightenment. And When I was young in the Dharma, they used to have a phrase that I, being young man, a little bit competitive, there was a phrase that you should practice as if your hair is on fire. And, and I love that phrase. I was like into that. I'm like, I'm going to practice like that. And, and it has its place. It has its place, and you can learn a lot. But many years later, my wife, who often enlightens me about things like this, who is a Zen student, said, well, here's the original quote. And the original quote says, when the mind of itself is peaceful and pure, then all that is needed is bold advance, as if to save one's head from fire. When the mind of itself is peaceful and pure, then all that is needed is, is bold advance, as if to save one's head from fire. So really what the, what the quote's saying is actually after we get centered, after we get calm, after the samadhi starts to deepen, then there's, that's the time to make an effort. That's when we make bold advance because we're there, we're centered. Okay, let's go from here and see what effort looks like from here. So, I also want to remind you of something. You all know a lot about concentration. You do. Whether you know it explicitly or not is a different question. But implicitly, we all know about concentrating. We've all been concentrated. So I'd like you to consider the areas where you concentrate, where you find yourself present, undivided, undistracted, and relaxed. And, and for some people it might be in sport, in running or swimming or biking or basketball or baseball or soccer. You can remember those times when you become, or tennis, when you become one with the racket. 
or in the arts, in dance, in theater, music, in painting, drawing, making collage, where you're just there in a very full, very present, very relaxed, very whole, W-H-O-L-E, whole way. And there's a pleasure to it. There's a pleasure not just to the art, not just to the sport, but to your presence itself. And for some people, maybe it's in gardening or in scholarship. Or maybe for some people, it's in mathematics. But you know something about samadhi. And so you can contemplate that a little bit. You don't have to spend a lot of time. And because you'll notice certain qualities will start to match up in the meditative process. One, one reason why I believe I had fairly decent samadhi, even when I started practice, was I'd been a musician for many years. I used to practice eight hours a day. You can't practice eight hours a day if you're going to be tense the whole, for eight hours. You actually have to learn to relax holding the flute I played and, and then to work with the um, different um, challenges that you're working with, that you're trying to master. And so any area of mastery is generally a place where you've learned something about concentration. This is from a woman named Mildred Chase. She said, just being at the piano, egoless, is to reach the place where the only thing that exists is the sound and the moving toward that sound. The music on the page that was outside of you is now within you and moves through you. You're a channel for the music and play from the center of your being. Everything that you have consciously learned, all your knowledge emanates from within you. You don't have to think about it. There is a sense of oneness in which the heart of the musician and the heart of the composer meet, in which there is no room for self-conscious thought. You are one with yourself in the act and feel as if playing has already happened and you are effortlessly releasing it. The music is in your hands, in the air, in the room. The music is everywhere and the whole universe is contained in the experience of playing the piano. That's a, that's a beautiful understanding of samadhi. Now, a little bit I've been describing the, the art or the skill of practice. There's a lot of fruits to this practice, a lot of fruits. And I won't go into them all. We'll keep expanding as we go through our 10 days here together. But one of the things that I think is very helpful to hear is just that we can learn how to nourish ourselves in the meditative process itself. That this is something we can learn. And it's very nourishing, that sense of unity, that sense of oneness. It's why we, we recognize it, even if we don't have a name for it, when we first experience it in whatever way. Sometimes it's out walking in the sunset. Sometimes it's through sport, like I said, or arts. Sometimes it's even sitting here and we're not even, even in the mindfulness practice, all of a sudden everything starts to line up and there's a sense of, oh yes. And the, and the yes is, oh, this is good. 
and it's good, it's, this is not a word we use so much in Buddhism, but I'll say it, it's good for the soul. It's good for the heart. It's good for the being. This sense of being present, of being relaxed and here, and, and the, the breath and the samadhi and the oneness can start to be soothing, calming, invigorating, delightful, pleasurable, enjoyable, rich, satisfying, the sense of contentment Sally mentioned. And it's, it's considered the wise use of pleasure. We'll talk about that more. One of the phrases that I love that the, is used in the Buddhist text is in the sutta, it's called The Greater Discourse to Sakaka. I don't know how to say the name right. Sachika, thank you. Sachika. Double C, Sachika. And it's the story of the Buddha's enlightenment. It's a beautiful story. If you've never read it, read it sometime. It's, you know, he was serious, serious guy. And he, and he talks about, after being, you know, practicing these severe austerities, like living on one grain of rice a day. He got very thin, as you can imagine. He almost died, and then he realizes this doesn't work, and finally he takes some food, which was considered a big taboo. If you're an ascetic, that's not cool. You don't eat you know, rice pudding. That's not a great thing to do. All your friends look down on you. You're a wimp now, because he took the food, and then he realizes that oh, he needed to. And, not only what happens next is he has, or actually this happens before he took the food. He, when he's almost dead, he remembers, he has a memory of his childhood. And this time in his childhood when he went into samadhi and he went in naturally. He was just sitting in the, in the beauty of the rose apple orchard in his father's garden, a kid. And as he sat there, he remembers, he remembers, oh, oh yeah, this happened to me. What was that? See, you can hear the investigative factor. He's wondering about that. And he's wondering because it comes when he's almost dying. He remembers this wonderful samadhi that came naturally. And as he remembers it, he starts to think, here, I'll, I'll actually read it to you. He says, he says, I was sitting in the cool shade of the rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, and I entered upon and abided in the first jhana, the first absorption. And with rapture and pleasure born from seclusion or withdrawal, depending on the translation. And he says, could that be the path to enlightenment? I mean, he asks him, he wonders. Then following on that memory came the realization that is the path to enlightenment. And I thought, am I afraid of that pleasure? And he thinks again, this is all the wise use of thought and contemplation and inquiry. I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with unwholesome states. And he realizes that it's not easy to obtain that state in the emaciated state that his body's in. So he starts to eat and care for his body. And that leads to him going into deeper absorptions. And then here's the piece. 
he goes into the absorptions and then it said, when my concentrated mind was thus purified, when my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it towards knowledge of past lives, then knowledge to other beings and their lives. And then he takes it, he, and this is really the, the fruit of the concentrated mind, that it becomes bright, awake, purified, clarified. Here's another concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, imperturbable. And that we, we, that is the mind that turns towards awakening, that can penetrate reality. And so it says, I directed to the knowledge of the recollection of past lives. I directed the mind now to the knowledge of the passing away and reappearance of beings everywhere, seeing with the divine eye. And when my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, uh, unblemished, uh, malleable, steady, uh, attained imperturbability, I directed it to knowledge of the destruction of the taints. It's a euphemism for freedom. Uh, that's the release of the fetters of the defilements. And I directly knew, as it actually is, this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. And this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And when I knew and saw thus, my mind was liberated with this concentrated bright, clarified consciousness. And it's part of our birthright. I think one of the important archetypal pieces in the story is that he remembers, oh, this is something that was natural. This was something that was part, that happened naturally as a child. This is something I know. And knowing it, I can... I can only cultivate it because it's part of our who and what we are in essence. It's part of what's available to us. And now we take the time, we have the patience, we make our offering to the Dharma with our devotion and dedication just to the breathing so that we too can begin to realize this bright, purified, clarified, malleable heart, mind. So let's sit for a minute before we end.
Thank you for your kind attention. I believe we Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.